Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. One person, one vote. Georgia's Republican governor signs a new law to limit voting. We're going to stand up for that sacred American right. One person, one vote. But is there anything Democrats will be able to do? I'll speak exclusively to two Georgia Democrats, Senator Raphael Warnock and Congresswoman Nakima Williams, next. And the world stage. President Biden works on America's relationship with allies. We need alliances now as much and maybe even more than ever. As tensions with Russia and China grow, how will the U.S. push back on escalating threats? Secretary of State Tony Blinken joins me exclusively. Plus, final stretch, the U.S. sets a new vaccine goal. I believe we can do it. Now, stunning news from top doctors on the early handling of the pandemic, with CNN's chief medical correspondent Sanjay Gupta ahead. Hello, I'm Dana Bash in Washington, where the State of Our Union is ready for renewal. After the momentum of his first weeks in office, President Biden is now facing several urgent national crises, immigration, gun control and voting rights, and the reality of limited options to bring about the sweeping change he wants. This week, the assault on voting rights took on a new urgency as Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp signed a new law Thursday, making it more difficult for thousands of Georgians to vote. The law imposes a new voter identification requirement, several of them for absentee ballots, empowers state officials to take over local elections boards, limits the use of ballot drop boxes, and makes it a crime to approach voters in line to give them food or water. In his first solo press conferences taking office, President Biden assailed the efforts by Republicans across the country to restrict voting as, quote, sick and un-American, and said Friday the Justice Department is taking a look at the measure. But with such a narrow majority in the U.S. Senate, the options for Democrats to take legislative action on voting rights are realistically slim. I want to note we invited Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp to join us this morning, and his office did not respond to our request. Joining me now is Democratic Georgia Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock. Senator Reverend, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I want to put up that picture of Governor Brian Kemp signing this law in a room full of white men. And here's what he had to say about the law shortly before that ceremony. We're actually expanding the right to vote in Georgia. Now, you're not hearing that from the other side, but that's what the truth is. We're securing the vote. I think most people want that, whether they're Democrat, Republican, or somewhere in between. Everybody wants to have confidence in the elections. I believe that's what we're doing in Georgia. What's your response to that, sir? Uh, He knows better. And uh, unfortunately, Georgia has a long history of voter suppression. And when I say a long history, I I mean in in recent years. And uh, certainly it has ramped up with this bill that he signed into law. 
the other night, uh, as you pointed out, uh, in the presence of, of all white men. And on the other side was a state legislature, state legislator elected by her people uh, to represent them. And she was lightly knocking on the door and was arrested and charged with two felonies. Georgia needs to understand, that is, those in the state legislature, the governor, uh, that it wasn't just this state legislator who's a member of my church, and I went to see about her that night. Uh, she's not the only one knocking at that door. The people are knocking at the door of their democracy, and they will not be denied. Uh, they're raising their voices. I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the For the People Act so that we can expand our democracy rather than contract it. The governor is taking us back. We intend to go forward. And I want to ask about that uh, legislation in a moment. But first, you are the first black man from Georgia and the first black Democrat from a former Confederate state ever elected to the U.S. Senate. Uh, you have to run again next year to keep your seat. Do you think this law restricting voting rights in your state is a backlash to your election specifically? Well, you know, I, I am very clear that this is not about me. This is really about preserving the voices of the people in their democracy. And I honestly think, uh, Dana, that uh, politicians focused on their own political ambition is mm -hmm. what's gotten us here in the first place. Yeah. Uh, you have legislators who are running scared. And so rather than uh, having the people select uh, their uh, uh Politicians, the politicians are trying to cherry pick their voters. This is an assault on the covenant that we have with one another as an American people, and it's my job to protect it. And, and I understand what you mean. I guess maybe the question isn't about you personally, but about what you represent. Oh, I think, uh, you know, we've seen this over the history of our country. Our democracy expands and it contracts. We have this amazing idea uh, when you think about the long march of human history, this experiment in self-government, one person, one vote. And it was stated in the charter documents of our nation, but we've always had to fight for it. Uh, when Jefferson offered up those ideals that, that all men are created equal, I guess he meant all men because women weren't in included. Mm -hmm. uh, people of color, black people have had to fight for their vote. And uh, honestly, it, it, is, it is disconcerting that here we are again fighting for what's basic, um, but we will not be worn down. Uh, we intend to stand up to this moment. And I think it's important that people understand that while race certainly is, is a part of this equation mm -hmm. and young people and others are being marginalized, at the end of the day, this is about our democracy. This is about the covenant we have with one another as an American people. We have big arguments in our country about the direction, about the things that we need to do. But at the end of the day, the four most powerful words in a democracy are the people have spoken. And uh, we cannot allow politicians to silence the people, crowd them out of their own democracy. So let's talk about uh, some of the, the potential solutions for what you're talking about. President Biden, of course, called efforts to restrict voting in your state of Georgia and elsewhere an atrocity. He said it was Jim Crow in the 21st century. But he also said the next big initiative is still going to be infrastructure. So should the president prioritize federal voting rights and legislation to do that over infrastructure or anything else? Oh, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We've got to work on the infrastructure of our country, our roads and our bridges. And we've got to work on the infrastructure of our democracy. 
After all, the only reason we're able to get anything done, have the prospects of getting more done uh, this Congress, is because people were able to show up and mm -hmm. express their voices in their democracy. We wouldn't have passed the American Rescue Plan had the people of Georgia not stood up in the way that they did, historic turnout, and as a result of that, we were able to pass a historic uh, piece of legislation, shots in people's arms, uh, checks right. in their pockets, and uh, so we've got to do both of those things. Yeah, and, and that makes sense, but uh, a president's time is limited, and in 2006, the Senate voted 98 to 0 to reauthorize the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Many of those Republican yeses are still there. So does President Biden need to get personally involved, step in, get Republicans and Democrats in a room to find bipartisan uh, legislation and a path forward? Oh, I think the president is engaged on this issue. <clears throat> and when I've talked to him, uh, he's agreed that voting rights uh, are foundational, that this is the work we have to do. And I have to tell you, you know, that I was heartened when I heard him speak so clearly mm -hmm. about how urgent this is, uh, recognizing that this is Jim Crow 2.0. It, it reminded me of another president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who, when he saw what was going on in the South, mm -hmm. people standing up for their rights, he gave that famous address to the nation, and he ended it by lifting up the words from the anthem of the movement. And he said, and we shall overcome. And he uh, also- His words, go ahead. He also twisted arms big time to get that yep. done. Absolutely. So does President Biden need to follow that lead as well? Uh, I, don't, I, I think that the president is very much engaged, and we're having these conversations all mm -hmm. the time. And I think, I think uh, uh, you're going to see that we are going to find a way uh, to secure voting rights uh, and pass uh, uh, the kind of legislation that expands rather than contracts our democracy. I know you have said that the focus should be on Republicans and not on changing the filibuster, and I hear you on that. But the reality is, unless Republicans get on board, the filibuster is a big obstacle to this legislation becoming law. At his press conference, President Biden indicated he's open to some reforms and said he considers the filibuster a, a relic of, of Jim Crow, but he still won't call for eliminating it outright. Does he need to do that? I, I think that we have to pass voting rights no matter what. And the reason why I have cons uh, insisted that we talk to our Republican uh, sisters and brothers on the other side of the aisle uh, is because if we don't do anything else in the Senate, uh, we have to stand up for the democracy. The filibuster at the end of the day is about minority rights in the Senate. How are you going to insist on protecting minority rights in the Senate while refusing to protect minority rights in the society? So is that a yes? So, so the buck, the, look, the, the ball is in their court. They could vote the bill up, but if they don't, we have to pass voting rights no matter what. Georgia-based corporations like Coca-Cola and Delta are facing intense criticism for not doing more to publicly oppose this law. Organizations like the PGA, the MLB are also under pressure to move high-profile events like the Masters and the All-Star Game out of your state of Georgia. Does corporate America need to be more forceful in denouncing this law? Should boycotts be on the table? I think we all have to use our voices. And uh, I have to tell you, as the pastor of Ebenezer Church, I've seen these corporations falling over themselves every year around the time of the King holiday 
celebrating Dr. King. And yes, I think that uh, the way to celebrate Dr. King uh, is to stand up for what he represented, voting rights. And uh, so we will see how all of that plays out. But I'm focused on uh, what we can do in the United States Senate. We have a responsibility uh, to make sure that we secure the franchise. And we, when we do that, we protect the democracy. And I think also uh, we set the climate for business. Uh, we we want to see people prosper, uh, particularly who have been suffering for months under this pandemic. Uh, we need to pass this legislation, protect uh, uh, the right of the people uh, to be heard in their own democracy, uh, and to make sure that, that Georgia is open, open for business and open for voting. So no boycotts? Listen, I'm not focused on that. I am focused okay. on what I can do as a United States senator. Uh, one last question before we go. Today is Palm Sunday, the start of Holy Week. You are leaving here. You said you, as you mentioned, you are uh, going to lead your congregation in worship at the Ebenezer Baptist Church. What's your message going to be after this incredibly difficult year? Well, you know, it's Palm Sunday and... Uh, Jesus confronts uh, the powers, and um, we all have a decision to make. Uh, there was a governor that, that he confronts in that moment named Pilate, and the governor has a decision to make, and I think that all of us have a decision to make. Are we going to stand on the side of truth and righteousness and justice? Are we going to stand up on the right side of history? This is a defining moment in the American nation, and uh, all of us have a role to play. Senator uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. And up next, what country does the Biden administration consider to be America's greatest adversary? I'll ask Secretary of State Tony Blinken in an exclusive interview. Plus, shocking revelations from public health officials about the early days of the pandemic and the hundreds of thousands of lives those early decisions Cost. Stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Dana Bash. Tensions between the U.S. and China are rising after officials clashed in a rare public confrontation earlier this month, and the U.S. and the EU imposed new sanctions over China's human rights abuses. The growing threat from China is one of several reasons the Biden administration is working to reinvigorate America's relationship with allies. We spoke exclusively to the U.S. Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, as he wrapped up a NATO summit in Brussels about the Biden's Biden administration's new approach. Thank you so much, Mr. Secretary, for joining me. I want to start with uh, a speech this week that you gave. You listed China first among uh, the military and non-military threats to the United States. This comes, of course, after you clashed with Chinese officials in Anchorage last week. China is challenging the U.S. Uh, on cybersecurity, economics, and with its military, and committing what you've called genocide against the Uyghurs. So do you consider China the United States' biggest adversary? Uh, Dan, I wouldn't simplify it to, to, to one label. Uh, there are clearly and increasingly adversarial aspects to the relationship. There, there are certainly competitive ones. There are also still some, some cooperative ones. 
But the common denominator is the need to approach China from a position of strength, whether it's adversarial, whether it's competitive, whether it's cooperative. And that's a big part of the reason that I was in, uh, in Asia last week, uh, in Japan and, and, and Korea, and a big part of the reason that I'm here uh, in Europe and at NATO uh, and the EU uh, this week. Uh, it's uh, about making sure that as we engage China, one of our biggest sources of strength, our alliances, our partnerships. When we approach the challenges that China poses together, we're going to be much more effective in dealing with them. You said at your confirmation hearing, Mr. Secretary, that you believe the Chinese government misled the world about coronavirus. Given that, and the millions of people, of course, who have died around the world, should China be punished for that? And I think the, the, the issue for us is to make sure that we do everything possible to prevent another pandemic, even as we're working through this one, uh, or at the very least to make sure that we can mitigate uh, in much more effective ways any damage done if something happens in the future. And a big part of that is making sure that we have a, a system in place, including with the World Health Organization, that uh, features transparency, that features information sharing, that features access for international experts at the start of something like this. Uh, and that's where I think China, like uh, every other country, has real obligations that it needs to make good on. So I think what we need to be focused on is making sure we're protecting ourselves and protecting the world going forward. And that's going to require uh, a lot of reform, and it's going to require China to do things that it hasn't done in the past. That sounded like a no when it comes to repercussions for what happened in the past, uh, and maybe even that's happening currently, which is uh, the damage that is being done around the world because of this pandemic. No repercussions? No punishment? Look, I think that we've got a there's a report coming out shortly by the World Health Organization. We've got real concerns about the methodology and the process that went into that report, uh, including the fact that uh, the, the government in Beijing apparently helped uh, to write it. But let's see what comes out uh, in that report. Uh, but we do need to have uh, both accountability for the past, but I think our focus needs to be on building a stronger system for the future. Okay, let's talk about uh, what's going on in Europe right now. The U.S., uh, as you well know, is threatening sanctions over a new natural gas pipeline known as Nord Stream 2. Uh, it's between Germany, which is a key NATO ally, and Russia. You made a really a big show and a point of saying that unity is important with European allies, as you just said uh, just now, during the trip that you're on uh, in Europe. This Pipeline is already about 90 percent done. So how worried is the Biden administration about the influence that this pipeline could give Russia in the region? Well, well, first, just to put this in context, because it's true, we have a difference with Germany over this, but Germany is one of our closest allies and partners anywhere in the world. And one of the things that really came out from the conversations this week is that in so many different areas that are having an impact on the lives of our citizens, we are working closely uh, together. And the fact that we have a difference over this pipeline is not going to change that. But we do have a difference. And President Biden has been very clear for a long time that he thinks the pipeline is a bad deal uh, and a bad idea. It undermines uh, European energy security. In fact, it, it undermines the very principles that the Europeans have agreed on about the need to diversify uh, energy sources and supply to make sure they're not reliant on any uh, one country, especially uh, not Russia. Uh, it is potentially harmful to, uh, to Ukraine, uh, to Poland, uh, to other countries. Uh, it gives uh, Russia uh, more of a weapon, uh, using uh, energy as a tool of, of coercion. So uh, we think it's a bad idea, and it was important for us to be able to, uh, to, to tell that directly to uh, our close uh, uh, partners in Germany, uh, and, uh, and that's what I did. And, uh, of course, Congress feels the same way. 
uh, and we have um, sanctioned companies uh, based on the law uh, that are participating in trying to build the pipeline, and we've uh, made clear that we'll continue uh, to do that. We just wanted to make sure that there was no ambiguity uh, in our position, that uh, our, our, our friends and partners understood us, and it's really unfortunate that the pipeline is um, in any way a source of division, but despite, again, that difference, it's not taking away from the fact that uh, in virtually every other area, we are working uh, more closely together than ever. Is there anything you can do to stop its completion? Well, uh, ultimately, that's up to those who are, um, uh, who are trying to uh, build the pipeline and, and complete it. We just wanted to make sure that uh, our position, our opposition to the pipeline was, uh, was well understood. Uh, understood. So I want to ask about Russia. The U.S. Uh, and Russia is in an incredibly tense period right now. Uh, after President Biden called Vladimir Putin a killer, the Kremlin called back its ambassador. Under Putin, of course, Russia has interfered in American elections, put bounties on U.S. troops, hacked into U.S. computer systems. President Biden has said that Russia will pay a price for those actions. So what will that price be and when will that happen? Well, you're exactly right. You've, I think you've, you've touched on um, the, some of the most important points. And we've seen uh, across the board these different uh, examples of uh, Russia's aggression. Uh, there's also what's, uh, what's still going on uh, tragically in, uh, in eastern Ukraine, uh, to add to the list. Uh, and uh, the president has been very clear that uh, there will be consequences uh, uh, for these acts. And we are in the pr process of completing reviews uh, of the, uh, the cyber attack through, uh, through solar winds uh, on us. Uh, the interference in the election, uh, the uh, use of a chemical weapon to try to murder Alexei Navalny. We've already uh, spoken and acted, uh, uh, acted on that. Uh, the bounties on U.S. forces in, uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, there will be uh, costs and consequences. And I think you're seeing as well, and what I heard here at, uh, at NATO was a shared concern uh, about uh, Russia's actions across the board and a shared commitment uh, to stand together uh, against them. Uh, at the same time, we're, as, as we're very clear-eyed about that, uh, we also uh, find areas where it's in our mutual interest uh, to try to cooperate. We extended the New START nuclear arms reduction uh, treaty, one, one of the first things we did. There are other areas in the uh, realm of so-called strategic stability uh, where we uh, uh, might find uh, uh, ways to work together because it's in our mutual interest. But it really starts with being clear-eyed about the challenge that Russia poses and addressing that challenge together. I can tell you from the NATO meetings, there's an absolute commitment to do that. Right. But are you saying that you are not going to act and punish Russia for everything that it's done to the United States without NATO or European partners? Or are you saying that you, the U.S. will do it unilaterally if need be? And if so, how quickly? What's the timeline? Uh, I'm saying two things. I'm saying that, as the president's been very clear, uh, we will take necessary actions at a time and place of our choosing. But uh, whether it's uh, with regard to, to Russia, whether it's regard uh, to other countries that, that pose a challenge, we are uh, stronger and more effective when we're able to do it uh, in a coordinated fashion. You've seen examples of that just in the, in the past week with coordinated sanctions by the United States uh, by the, uh, and the European Union, uh, the U.K., uh, Canada, when it comes, for example, to uh, China and its human rights abuses in Xinjiang, uh, you'll, uh, you've seen that in the case of, uh, of Russia uh, as well. But we will take the steps necessary uh, to defend uh, our interests. Uh, and I think, uh, again, what I take away from 
the meetings this week and all of uh, all of the conversations we've had with our allies and partners is there is a real determination to make sure that, to the greatest extent possible, uh, we yeah. work together. Let's turn to Afghanistan. We are getting closer and closer to the May 1st deadline put in place by the Trump administration to withdraw all remaining 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. Uh, so the question is, considering the fact that President Biden uh, said that it would be tough to meet that deadline, CNN is reporting that he's considering an extension. What specifically does the administration need to see before you decide the time is right to safely withdraw U.S. troops? Well, as you know, we're, we're reviewing the policy very actively right now. One of the reasons that it was so important to come here this week was was do two things. Uh, one was to, to share uh, our thinking with uh, our allies and partners. There are actually more European forces in Afghanistan right now than there are Americans. So they're deeply invested in this with us, uh, and they've been shoulder to shoulder with us mm -hmm. from the very start. Uh, the, the one and only time uh, NATO's Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all, has been invoked, was actually in defense of the United States after we attacked on 9-11. So we have a deep uh, sense of gratitude mm -hmm. to our European partners for that. Uh, but one of the things that was important was not only to share uh, our thinking as we're going through this review, including the, the May 1st deadline, but to listen, to hear from our partners who are so invested, their ideas, their thoughts, their analysis. And that's exactly what I did. I listened very carefully. Um, I uh, phoned back to Washington, spoke to the president to relay the views of our allies and partners. And that's going to factor into his thinking and into the decisions he makes. So as a candidate, as you well know, Joe Biden uh, promised to end the forever wars and bring all U.S. combat troops home. Will he keep that promise here? Uh, he, he will. Uh, the, and we've been very clear, and, uh, and NATO's been very clear, that the approach that we're taking to this is uh, we went in together, uh, we've uh, adapted uh, to circumstances together, and we will come out together when the time is right. And uh, what we're focused on now is um, looking at the, the May 1st deadline. But beyond that, and as we're doing that, it was also very important to try to accelerate the diplomacy, because ultimately everyone recognizes that there's no uh, military solution to Afghanistan. There has to be some kind of political settlement, and it has to be a settlement reached by the Afghans themselves. So we've uh, we put some energy into the, the diplomatic effort uh, in uh, sharing some ideas with, uh, with the Afghan government, uh, with the Taliban, in mm -hmm. uh, bringing them together, uh, including uh, at a, a conference that will take place in the weeks ahead uh, in Turkey, um, having the UN uh, play a more prominent role in, in bringing people together, and also getting all of the, uh, the neighbors and other uh, countries that have both an interest and influence in Afghanistan uh, to actually engage uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and get into this effort. So all of that is happening uh, at the same time. And uh, you know, the, uh, what is ultimately necessary uh, for Afghanistan to have a, a, a just uh, and sustainable uh, peace is for uh, the parties to, to come together and negotiate one. I have to ask about uh Saudi. The Biden administration did not directly punish Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman after the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, despite an intelligence report saying that he was directly responsible for approving his murder. And President Biden didn't hesitate to call Vladimir Putin a killer. Do you consider Mohammed bin Salman a killer? Donna, here's, here's what we did, and, and it's important. Uh, the, the report that you referred to, we put out in the full light of day. It's not a report that was, was written uh, a couple of weeks ago. It had been um, sitting around for a little while. 
and we put it out. And that in and of itself is significant because it's not that there was anything new in the report uh, in terms of what had previously been reported, but the fact that the government of the United States put its imprimatur on that report and on that information, uh, including uh, responsibility for the murder of Mr. Khashoggi, I think is in and of itself important. Second, uh, we uh, sanctioned a number of direct participants in, uh, in the murder of Mr. Khashoggi, mm -hmm. and maybe as significantly going forward to make sure that to the best of our ability this doesn't happen again, uh, we put in place uh, something we call the Khashoggi ban, which makes sure that mm -hmm. anyone who, um, on behalf of the government, uh, tries to intimidate, uh, silence, uh, or do harm to someone uh, speaking out uh, against, uh, against that government, whether it's uh, a dissident, a political opponent, or a journalist, uh, well, we're going to make sure that that person uh, does not set foot in the United States. Uh, and uh, that applies not just to Saudi Arabia, it applies uh, around the world. Uh, and so uh, I think I, yeah. uh, we've and been And I understand all uh, of that, all that. of that At the same time. Transparency is, is I understand is all of that transparency, and, but, but uh, the fact beyond is the transparency, that, these, these that you said, sorry, the, the delay is a little much. Uh, let me just get, get in and just say that the, you, you have been transparent and you have been very clear about his role, the Saudi crown prince's role. So is he a killer? Here's here's the other fact that's very important. We have to we 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 have to and we do deal every day around the world uh, with leaders of countries uh, who do things that we find either uh, from objectionable to abhorrent. Uh, but in terms of actually advancing our interests and advancing our values, uh, it's important uh, to deal with them. Uh, the uh, crown prince is likely to be uh, the leader of Saudi Arabia far into the future. Uh, we have a strong interest, for example, in uh, working to end the war in Yemen, uh, probably the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. Uh, that's going to take meaningful uh, engagement by, uh, by the Saudis. Uh, and doing so, and we've actually made uh, real progress in that direction in the last, uh, in the last couple of months, uh, doing so is going to uh, advance values that we hold dear uh, in terms of protecting the, uh, the lives of, uh, of innocent civilians. Uh, there are, uh, in terms of advancing... Uh, human rights and, and progress in Saudi Arabia uh, itself. Are we better off um, recalibrating the relationship as we did or rupturing it? Uh, and I think that um, in terms of actually making a difference on the things we care about, the recalibration was very necessary, uh, and the president's been clear about that, but rupturing the relationship actually won't help us advance our interests or values. U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken, I have so much more to talk to you about. Please come back. Uh, I appreciate you giving us this time today. Thanks for having me. And up next, last summer on this very show, Dr. Deborah Burks told me something President Trump, he just didn't want to hear, that COVID was, quote, extraordinarily widespread in the U.S. What the president said to her after our interview, that's coming up. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Dana Bash. The beginning of the pandemic feels almost unimaginably long ago, but thanks to some extraordinary reporting, we are learning 
Some shocking new information about former President Trump, the doctors who advised him during the pandemic, and the fallout for the American people. Joining me now is our very own Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And Sanjay, I'm going to get to that amazing reporting in a moment. But first, I want to talk about what's going on right now in the pandemic. Families across the country are observing holidays this week, Passover, Easter Sunday. Some people are vaccinated, some people aren't. Uh, And the numbers are starting to tick up again. What is your advice for Americans getting together this week? Well, you know, I, I would say on a practical level, you know, we, we obviously have a lot more people who are vaccinated, but there's still the majority of the country who are not. If you are vaccinated and you want to spend time with other vaccinated people, do that. And you can do it indoors and you can give each other a hug and all that. And if you are vaccinated, like grandparents who are vaccinated, visiting with a single household that is low risk, that's that's OK as well. So those are two things you 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 know, the CDC is now saying you can do that you couldn't do a few weeks ago. But I think, you know, sort of broadly speaking, Dan, it's kind of like this. Um, if the country were a patient, it's like the treatment has started. The treatment has started and the treatment's a very effective treatment. But you've got to get the entire treatment before you can say, hey, look, we are now treated mm. and we're sort of, you know, we're at the first third of that treatment now. Uh, the good news is 75% of people over the age of 75 have received at least one dose of the vaccine now. That's that's great news because they are the most vulnerable. Right. But it's kind of like, you know, we got we got to hang on a little bit longer. And as you point out, the numbers are going up a bit and and that's worrisome. But I do think on a, on a positive note that the corresponding proportional hospitalizations and deaths mm-hmm. hopefully won't happen because we have uh, you know increasingly vaccinated the most vulnerable. Finish your treatment. Good advice. Uh, I want to talk about your special report airing tonight right here on CNN. You sat down with the top doctors who led the COVID response under the Trump administration, and you had a very revealing exchange with Dr. Deborah Burks. What did she tell you? Yeah, I mean, it, it was very interesting. So we got a sense of what was happening behind the scenes, and it involves actually an interview that you did with her, Dana, on, on this program. Uh, about what was happening in the country at that point. You're going to hear that in a second, but also hear what happened in the immediate aftermath of that interview that she did with you. And it raises these questions, Dana. Um, What kind of pressure was being exerted on people? How did they feel that pressure? But also a larger issue, Dana, which is if you're in a big job like that and it's not going great, do you stay in the job and try and just keep forging through? Or do you quit and possibly let someone even less effective come into the job? It's it's a tough question, but here's how it all played out. I knew I was being watched. Everybody inside was waiting for me to make a misstep so that they could, I I guess, remove me from the, the task force. It is extraordinarily widespread. The CNN report in August that got horrible pushback. Everybody who lives in a rural area, you are not immune or protected from this virus. That was a very difficult time because um, everybody in the White House was upset with that interview um, and the clarity that I brought about the epidemic. I can tell just by reading your face, that was a really tough time. What, what happened? Well, I got called by the president. What does he say? Well, I think you've heard other conversations that people have posted um, with the president. I would say it was even more direct than what people have heard. 
it was very uncomfortable, very direct, and very difficult to hear. Were you threatened? I would say it was a very uncomfortable conversation. That gives you a little idea of just sort of, Dana, what, what happened you know, right after that interview that she did with you. And I'll tell you, and you'll see tonight, it, it was a pattern of things. Dr. Burks was incredibly uh, introspective, perhaps the most of all the, all the doctors that we spoke to. Um, all of them, except for Dr. Fauci, are now private citizens, so they felt more uh, um, um, unbridled to be able to talk about this, talk about their mistakes, be very self-aware about how their reputations have been tarnished by this. It's extraordinary, really, Dana, to, to hear from them like this. It really is. I remember in the moment, Sanjay, the uh, hearing her be more candid than we'd heard any of the medical professionals around the former president and thinking, wow, uh, that was amazing. And then my next thought was she's going to get pushback. But boy, did she Uh, such tremendous reporting. I cannot wait to see uh, this documentary tonight. And you can see more from Dr. Burks and the other revelations about the covid crisis in Sanjay's two hour special. The pandemic doctors speak out tonight at 9 p.m. And a Georgia state representative spent Thursday in jail after being arrested at the Capitol. But she's not the first. Congresswoman Nakima Williams opens up about what it felt like when the same thing happened to her. That's next. Welcome back. America lost one of its heroes last year, Congressman from Georgia and civil rights activist John Lewis. His replacement in Congress, Representative Nakima Williams, is making history herself. As she settles into the role, she's looking to press ahead with Lewis's legacy. We talked to her as part of our series, Badass Women of Washington. I do want to acknowledge Nakima Williams, who is here because in some ways she made today possible. High praise for Congresswoman Nakima Williams, who is also the first black chairwoman of the Georgia Democratic Party. We not only delivered Georgia's 16 electoral college votes for Joe Biden, but we delivered not one but two United States Senate seats to change the course and trajectory of this country. Williams is a freshman member of Congress, so new that when she got an email inviting her to the congressional signing of the COVID relief bill, the enrollment ceremony, she had to look it up. I was like, Yes, but then I had to go to Google because I didn't know what an enrollment ceremony oh, was. I love that. With voting rights under fire, she's learning the ropes fast, using her new role as Congresswoman to fight for nationwide voting protections as Republicans back home in Georgia pass a law limiting access to voting. When I talked leading up to the election, people were like, oh, that's cute. They think that they're going to win. Republicans are pushing back and they're upset that we were able to win. And so they're going to do everything in their power right now to restrict access to people who mainly look like me from voting. You are the first black woman to represent the 5th District in Georgia. I just know that there are so many people that are looking to me to make sure that I move us like one step closer to full equality. And like Congressman Lewis often said, each generation has an obligation to move us one step closer. And so it's my turn to pick up the mantle. Williams is truly picking up the mantle from the late John Lewis. She holds his congressional seat. You and Congressman Lewis were very close. Yes. 
Um, he was my mentor, my friend, my shopping buddy. And What do you mean um, shopping buddy? Where so did you shop? Dillard's in Atlanta was our spot at Atlantic <laughs> really? Station. <laughs> but the pressure is there. It, is, it absolutely is because I don't want to let anyone down. And I, and I know that there are a lot of people counting on me. Like Lewis, Williams grew up in rural Alabama. I never imagined, um, just from my upbringings, that I would be here in the United States Congress. I literally grew up in a home with no indoor plumbing and no running water. Once a month, we drove to Opelika and we got food stamps and we got the government assistance. And so when I hear people here in the United States Congress talk about cutting those programs or those programs not being needed, I think about how much of an impact it had on me and us just being able to make it. Activism is in her blood. Her great aunt was the first black student admitted to the University of Alabama. I remember them working at the polls on election days and the leftover little cards that they would bring where you have to register if you were a Democrat or a Republican. And I would play school with those when I brought, when they were brought home. I stood peacefully next to my constituents because they wanted their voices to be heard. As a Georgia state senator in 2018, she says she went to check out a protest in the Capitol and ended up getting arrested. It was not John Lewis-style civil disobedience. In our state constitution, um, legislators are free from arrest. Like, we're not even allowed to be arrested in our constitution. And that day, they took me to jail in zip ties and booked me in the county jail. I was told that I needed to remove my clothes so that they could strip search me. Would that ever have happened if you were a white man? So not only would it never have happened, but it didn't happen because there were colleagues of mine standing there with me in the rotunda. This is still a town full of white men. What's it like? Um, I think that January 6th put it in perspective for me. To see that Confederate flag going through the rotunda of the Capitol was like someone was trying to send a reminder that no matter how far we get in this country, that trying to put us in our place. And what do you do with that reminder? I push forward. And I mean, it makes me want to do more. Georgia is a state moving forward. We in 2016, Williams held her baby boy as she announced Georgia's delegates at the Democratic Convention. Her son Carter is now five and, like working moms everywhere, stays involved a lot by FaceTime. Oh, not your mask, baby, your math at school. Oh, I did great on it. You did great on it? Uh-huh, I lost it. <laughs> the area of Atlanta Williams represents is drenched in history, including the Ebenezer Church where Martin Luther King preached. While all seats have the same weighted vote here in the United States Congress, this is a very special seat in a very special district, and I don't take it lightly. And up next, the latest on the cargo ship that's stuck and has the attention of the world. Stay with us. Two heavy tugboats are on their way to help crews struggling to dislodge a giant container ship that ran aground in the Suez Canal on Tuesday. Right now, authorities are hoping they can dredge enough sand from under the ship to move it today. The boat that launched a thousand memes is currently causing a traffic jam of more than 320 ships carrying billions of dollars of cargo. Stay with CNN all day for the very latest. Thank you so much for spending your Sunday morning with us. The news continues next.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.